This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. And we are back with a fabulous episode this week from deep in the bowels of Jerusalem, the Nachlaot neighborhood, a very, very charming, picturesque neighborhood tucked away near the Shuk in Jerusalem. And I recorded this conversation with Yom Tov Glazer many months ago already during my Israel trip in August of 2018. And we are actually coming towards the end of the release of those many, many episodes, those 25 or so episodes garnered during that trip. But in any event, I met with Yom Tov at his home on a bustling Thursday night as Shabbat preparations were well underway and it seemed like the entire city of Jerusalem was wide awake. Even though it was after midnight, we finished our interview well after 1 a.m. And of course, his night wasn't finished. As we ended, a newly married young couple came in to say hello and reconnect and the entire house was really a hub of energy and activity and although Yom Tov himself has a very relaxed and chill vibe he's a person who is also perpetually in motion and accomplishing many many different things we are starting also to round towards the end of our mindfulness meditation spirituality series and again Yom Tov much like Dove Bear Cohn of a couple weeks ago, has a really fascinating story. Not quite as extensive travel, but still quite a bit of that, as well as really interesting vignettes as a surfer and a mountain biker and a real outdoorsman. Of course, today Yom Tov lives and teaches in Jerusalem, as well as around the world through his Possible You seminars and many other projects. Once again, thank you to everyone who continues to share our show. The audience continues to grow, which is wonderful. And we appreciate the continued followers on Instagram at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully. And now to Nachlaot, Jerusalem, for our conversation with Yom Tov Glazer. We are here with Yom Tov Glazer, acclaimed speaker, blogger, uh, guitarist, surfer, and many other things. And uh, we are here in the inner chambers of Jerusalem, in the beautiful neighborhood of Nachlaot, a lovely walking neighborhood near the old city of Jerusalem, near the Shuk, on a beautiful Jerusalem night. How are you, Yom Tov? Great, thank God, yeah. Wonderful. It's late, but I feel good. I feel energized. Yeah, it is is very late, but uh, it seems like Jerusalem, not New York, is the city that never sleeps. Yeah, it is, and especially Thursday night. Thursday night, I was just shopping for you know Shabbat necessities, and it's like unbelievable. the The streets are teeming with people. Right. And there's 
people pushing strollers. The only time I've seen that, you know, Lahav deals in Vegas, <laughs> you know, middle of the night, people pushing strollers and like, you know, yeah. like they try to make it like it's the daytime there. Uh, that's kind of what I felt like, just with like a spiritual twist. Yeah, it's a, it's a late night tonight in Jerusalem. It's awesome. Um, so anyway, Yom Tov, tell us a little bit about your background. I know from the little I know of your story, uh, you've had a really colorful past, some really interesting exploits and, and a really unique journey. So tell us a little bit about it. Uh, take it from the top. Okay, um, what version would you like? I mean, I think we should do the shortest. Let's do the true one. version and, and one really embellished with fabulous details. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> no, no, no. That would take way too long. And the, I think uh, we, there's probably so many amazing things to talk about besides my story. But I can tell you that I was uh, born and raised in Los Angeles, California, in West LA, a place called Brentwood. Mm. I even met some Persians today from Brentwood. Uh-huh. There's it's all Persian nowadays. There's right? a lot of Persians in Brentwood. <laughs> yeah. You know LA at all? A little bit, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so I grew up in, in West LA. In, uh, I believe OJ was from Brentwood, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. OJ Simpson, yeah. He, he actually tried to buy my father's house. Did he really? Yeah, wow. Dust, Dustin Hoffman lives in my father's house. Too. Wow. Yeah. According to Adam Sandler, OJ Simpson is not a Jew, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think a guy named, uh, what was the guy's name he killed? Ron something or other. Ron Goldman. Ron Goldman, yeah, I don't, another Jew. He was a I Jew. don't think he believed OJ was a Jew either. Right. Anyway, but, um, so I grew up there, and um, my next door neighbor was the drummer of the Doors, and Dustin Hoffman lived behind our house. And so he moved one over. He moved one over, <laughs> yeah. And on the, our right was, a, was a Mel Brooks's partner in Hollywood, a guy named Ron Clark. Okay. And our property was like three times their properties. It was wow. Massive, what did your parents do? What brought them? Were they in the My father industry? was in, no, no, yeah, they actually weren't. They were in, uh, my father was in sportswear, men's sportswear. Interesting, okay. And he that made surfwear. Oh, okay, well that made for some nice perks, I'll bet. Yeah, very nice perks. Uh, I never went without, a, you know, surf shorts and stuff. And anyway, but I, I was kind of one of those trust babies, you know, growing up in a wealthy home and but uh, when I was 11 years old, I kind of wanted to find something more real, more true. I wasn't convinced anyone was so happy. Uh, I was, I really wanted, I wanted to find something more meaningful than that world. And so that began a, a great search. And so I like to say that, uh, that when you take a trust baby and a Rastafarian, it becomes a Trustafarian. <laughs> so I was kind of a Trustafarian. And uh, the beauty of the search for, for Trustafarians is that is that you never have to stop searching. Mm. You get to keep going. See, all those other searchers I met along the way eventually had to like buckle down and get a job. Right. I never had to do that. Because you, you could afford to. <laughs> yeah, just kept going. You know? Yeah. Just kept moving and moving. I'm still moving. It's been, uh, since I'm 11, I'm already on the, I don't even know how many years it's been, but it's close to four decades of, right. of just uh, pumping out the search. And you know, as Bono says, and I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And I mean, I've found a ton of what I'm looking for, but I'm still searching and discovering searching so more. much, so much. I mean, now I'm searching more in than out. You know, then I was searching outward. Right. And now I search much more inward. And even then I did a lot of inward searching because you know, being born there was like not the search place. <laughs> it was like, it was more like a, a Lexus. For BMW. It was like, yeah, Lexus BMW dealership. Searching like, for luxury car dealerships. Right. I did actually, um, I went to our, our rabbi 
growing up that, you know, he was just the rabbi of this big, you know, Cadillac shul, you know, that yeah. only filled up on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. I actually did go to him and ask him some questions, but uh, he totally failed that one. I mean, he, he couldn't figure out what it had to do with his salary, my questions. <laughs> and anyway, but that was, that was pretty lame. And, and so I did a lot of inner, inner searching then and uh, discovering. Uh, what can you do as an 11-year-old? I mean, obviously you can you know, contemplate, but well, you can't really go very far. Yeah, you can't go far. And so I, I actually went into, uh, a little more into the inner world, you know, uh, looking, looking into you know, more of a, uh, a deeper search, very contemplative and introspective, and I guess you would call it more of a psychedelic search, you know, like... Uh, looking into the more mystical realms as a child. Did you find yourself like socially isolating because of not that? Not at all. <laughs> not at you all. You were off in the corner like meditating. I was so charismatic. Okay. I mean, I was just throwing big parties and ringleader and getting everyone in all kinds of trouble because I was kind of like a cat. I still am. I always land on my feet and not everyone land. A couple of people were landing on their backs. <laughs> right. You know, I, I felt bad. At least after the parties in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> So, anyway, but the, yeah, I was, I was, I've always been very influential and very charismatic and very caring right. and loving and pretty happy in general. Um, and, the, and then at 11, I, I, because of that kind of, the external world wasn't really a place to make a search So for me at that point in that neighborhood. So I actually, um, I had been surfing and biking, uh, mountain biking and I'm sorry, skateboarding and biking. So I, I took on surfing. Like I, I left the skating world where I was skating in uh -huh. the, you know, empty swimming pools, you know, and skate parks and stuff. <laughs> right. So I took it to the surfing and surfing. You hated Memorial Day, huh? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Although in LA, aren't the pools filled year round? They are year round, but all it took was a construction site with a new pool uh, and, okay. or an old pool and we would take over. But we also had like Marina Skate Park and Right. You know, these old classic Venice Beach? Parts. Yeah, right near Venice, yeah. actually. And, and we had half pipes here and there. And, but as soon as I hit the surf, it, first of all, it feels so much better when you fall. <laughs> <laughs> and once, once I hit the water, I was like, there's no more landing on pavement. Like, I'm done with that. And it also led to great adventure because once you get that, you get a wonder, wonder law, lust, a wonder lust with surfing. And, you, and there's this spot and there's that spot. And if you just go a little more north, there's that spot. Mm. And if you go an hour north, well, you're in a whole new you know, county of surf spots. And What's different between places? I mean, it's just the wave uh, size? There's just so much, so much. There's wind, wind direction, swell direction, right. uh, intervals between waves. There's, uh -huh. um, there's high tide, there's low tide. Right. There's, you know, there's just a million things going on. Is it the new moon? Is it the full moon? Is it a half moon? You know, because that's going to affect tides as well. How big the swing. I mean, to an ignoramus like me, it just looks like, you know, it looks like there's waves. <laughs> right, right. Sometimes there's big waves and sometimes there's small waves, but there's, you know. And you could, like, turn the corner and suddenly you need a full wetsuit and you turn another two corners and you're fine in, a, in your surf shorts. So it's like, there's there, there a lot of variables, a lot of variables that we were involved in and, and also... Uh, wave prediction like mm. we were everyone every surfer is a bit of a meteorologist uh -huh. yeah. throw out a little money on the, <laughs> on trying the to figure forecast. out figure out where to surf next week right and um and we tra so we wound up traveling a lot and jumping into people's cars and when we were kids and trying to get to the beach any way we could in fact you know it's pretty hard hitchhiking with a surfboard 
<laughs> you're just not like people's one choice, especially when you're coming back wet. But of course, you don't care if you come back ever again once you're surfing. But they, but getting to the beach, you're jonesing to get out there and you're hitchhiking and cars are passing you. So no I, Uber back then. No Talking Uber. About Uber pool. Play yeah. on words. <laughs> Uber pool, right? I like that. So. Anyway, so in the, in the, I promised myself that when I get a car, I will take anyone hitchhiking wherever they need to go. Ooh. And I fulfilled that. Dangerous. I drove uh, all over the place, taking people everywhere after I got my car, because I knew how it felt deeply. Interesting. Funny thing was, later I wound up in Jerusalem with no car. You know, yeshiva boy in Jerusalem. Sure. No car. Hitchhiking. And people passing me without a surfboard. <laughs> and I said to him, I mean, this is a good hitchhiking country, but I said to myself, when I get a car, I'm picking up everybody. Kids, I pick people up? Oh, yeah, I pick people up, yeah. The kids would definitely agree. Although I've learned over the years that kids are kind of quiet when you pick someone mm. up. And so I realized this is their time with me. Right, that's probably a safe uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't, behavior. I don't pick people up as much any, when I'm with one, if I'm with one kid, no. I'm going to talk to that That's kid. your one-on-one time. Yeah. Yeah, those priorities. Yeah, because they, they get really quiet. Yeah. Anyway. Um, it sounds like your teenage years were dominated by a lot of surfing. A lot of surfing. Did that help you find any clarity of meaning or just kind of Not set it aside? Oh, yeah. It was a total escape. You yeah. Know, it was just runaway, you know. It was, it was great times. It was really good athletic for athletics. Mm. You know, I was in incredible shape. And Interesting. Sta from surfing. I'm still in that shape. Like, I never left that. Yeah, it was good for that. It was, it was also good a bit for the search because I wound up in a lot of foreign countries over the time. So I got to interview a lot of people. And, you know, I, like, for example, when I was surfing in Europe, I heard my first, like, anti-American sentiments. Mm. I was like... Surprised you didn't hear those in California. Because <laughs> <laughs> California changed. Right, it was different times back yeah. then. You know, it was back before... That was before California seceded That's from right, the, the three uh, states union. or something. <laughs> three states. So, anyway, I... I got to meet a lot of people and kind of have a new look at where I was from and see that the American dream might be a bit of a nightmare and, mm. and met a lot of very provincial, small town people over the years and got to meet incredible Mexican fishermen, village people and, and uh, really wholesome people. And I learned a lot about the simplicity. And I, remember, I remember my parents had two live-ins Oh and goodness. they were just so much happier than my parents, you know, like, like they, what are the, how are these Guatemalans, wherever they were from, uh, who are thousands of miles away from home, alone in America, taking buses, overcrowded buses just to get to West L.A., how are they happier? Yeah. So there's some, there was a secret they had. Did you notice that even at the time or only reflecting back? Oh, I noticed it big time. I used to, I was a bit of a Marxist, you know, kind of a Marxist socialist guy. And I, yeah. I used to pontificate. In the middle of the night, I'd be talking to them and they would just, they'd be sometimes crying. And, you know, I remember they would say, oh, my English name is Johnny. And so they'd be, oh, Johnny, oh, Johnny. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Johnny. Because I would be talking about like, like the incredible class uh, yeah. differential that was going on there. And, you know, for no reason, I mean, it's not like we couldn't all share a little more. And um, that's probably why I share quite a bit. Mm -hmm. I'm very sharing. And, um, and by the way, I'm not a Marxist <laughs> at all or a socialist, although I do appreciate some socialism. Like, like, for example, I got to have as many kids as I wanted here with all medical and that's education right. covered. Right. And that's a, 
that's a pleasure. You, you definitely enabling Israel, enabling us to have big families has been, uh, you know, without any major expense on yeah. that besides clothing and food. I mean, what a bracha. And who what needs a, to eat, really? What a blessing. <laughs> yeah. They can share. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. So anyway, th those, uh, those years were, were really special years. And I learned to just be simple. You know, were I these like the college age years? Or no, no, these are 11, 11 to 20. You were traveling the world even? Yeah, 11 all the way till I was 23. I was wow. doing this. And you know, I kind of not so much present in school. But did you go to college? Well, kind of. <laughs> Um, my name stayed in the mix from 11 years old all the way to 23 in some kind of registrar of a higher education, but uh, I was not so present. Got it. it. I was more on the search. And, uh, and on the surf. On the surf, yeah. And uh, wearing surf shorts, you know, 24-7. You know, I don't think I wore underwear for 12 years. <laughs> that might be too much information for the podcast, but... <laughs> <laughs> you know, surf shorts... You just don't wear underwear with surf shirts. All right, it's good to know. <laughs> Should I ever take up that hobby? Simple. Way to incentivize. <laughs> yeah. And my housekeepers, after a while, they had to learn how to like rotate the t-shirts because I would wear the top one. I mean, by the time I came in the morning, got up to put it on, it had already been washed wow. from the day before. So they realized they had to like rotate them. <sighs> I wound up in the same shirt every day. So. Anyway, that continued on for a while. But, uh, but towards the, when I turned around 23, I got... 22, I would say, I, I got a little, a little depressed with that, uh, you know, Viktor Frankl search for meaning. Um, I had gotten pretty disillusioned at that point because my dream was that life would be deeply meaningful. And it just wasn't meaningful. It was, I mean, at best it became existential, meaning you, you make the meaning out of your existence. And, yeah. But maybe I wasn't creative enough because I always thought it would be much bigger than me. I didn't think I was, I didn't think the world was going to expect me to be in charge of what's meaningful. I thought the meaning would be outside of me. Not, I mean, there's tremendous internal meaning, but I was kind of hoping there'd be something bigger than so me. You did you intuit that there was an objective meaning? Nope. No, I, I was not that intuitive, I guess. I, I just kind of hoped and dreamed it would be, but and there was a point where I actually did check into university for, an in for a year. And I audited graduate study classes, philosophy, history of thought, and stuff like that. Which is kind of funny, having not been in school since I was 11, to suddenly be in graduate studies. And uh, they actually were not kind enough to grade. I did everything. I, did you write your paper in I, crayons? Everything I, <laughs> <laughs> write my paper in what? Write your papers in crayons. crayons. <laughs> I used emojis. Number two pencils, you know. <laughs> So the, uh, but they actually did great me. I got straight A's. That's great. In graduate studies, wow. philosophy. What school was that? It was, uh, I was living in Santa Barbara at the time. UC so Santa UCSB. Yeah. I was going to say, that was the one I was going to predict. Because yeah. Because the big surf school. It was school surrounded by surf spots. You can study buzzed and, and the whole Yeah, thing. you know that one. <laughs> you can study buzzed. So it's, um, so it's, yeah, it's a peninsula with surf on all sides, sticking way out into the ocean, like it's a mile out beautiful. into the ocean. You ever been there, Santa yes, Barbara? Yes, absolutely gorgeous. You've even been to the university? I passed by the university. It's just the whole thing. You know, it's the, mo the highest populated square mile west of the Mississippi, and everyone's between 18 and 22. Really? Yeah. You can imagine the maturity that going on over there. Yeah, it's absolutely probably astounding. <laughs> so I was living there, and actually, for that year that I wanted to actually see what was going on in the world of academia, I moved out of the party area, and I, I went You got to serious. Yeah, I moved into like more of a married student housing area and 
and uh, the other grad students. <laughs> And I just studied that year. But in the end, uh, we got, you got to the highest level, which was called deconstructionism, which sure. means you deconstruct the meaning of everything. You just don't put it back together. Right. You just take everything <laughs> apart. Have a good summer, everyone. <laughs> Who cares what Mary Shelley thought Moby Dick was about? We'll, we'll show him. Right. You know, so anyway, it, it just was... Uh, it was Bit of a joke, but I got depressed. I remember even like dragging my feet across the beach for my next surf session. I mean, I never stopped surfing. I was surfing, right. you know, hours a day, and and you know, on high level surfing and big wave riding, and and uh, I was literally dragging my feet across the sand to get to the water because human motivated. beings want to know what life's about. Yeah. And after that search, and you know, over there in the university, I was just like, okay. Well, if the world's truly meaningless, you know, why not just jump off a bridge or something? I, I just didn't understand why live, yeah. you know? And, uh, and then I got a little miracle happened is uh, a week before graduation, I got a phone call from my oldest brother, Sam, who's six years older than me. Mm. And he says that I've got a free ticket for you to go to Israel. And I'm like, well, why would I do that? And he's like, well, I know you're trying to get to Europe because I had surfed with the pro tour in France, Spain, Portugal the previous year. So jump back on that thing and then I'll head to Morocco and then I'll head to, to South Africa, hit my bucket list and, and then go to Australia mm. and renounce my citizenship to the US in protest of the Gulf War. And I, I just said, what's the catch? He says, you have to go to Israel, you know. I, he really was. He actually asked me if I want to go to Europe. That's what he said. Uh, that's how he, he came said, out yeah, with it. Free huh? ticket to Europe. So you want to go to Europe? <laughs> by the way. <laughs> yeah. By the way. So anyway, I took it. I took the ticket, and it was a full scholarship. I went to Asia Torah. Your brother had already been in Israel for a he while. He had been seven years prior, but didn't say a word to us when he came back to America. Oh, he didn't talk about his. Journey. Nothing. Zero. Had it impacted him, or? It impacted him hugely, but. He did not feel like he had done the right thing in moving back to, uh, meaning he had no, learned enough in four months of yeshiva that you know that it was compelling, and he knew it was true. He showed me journals later. He knew like Torah was the real deal, and and he was just a, you know he was kind of a had a dream to be a rock star, which he is yeah. a, he's he's a, a Jewish. Rock I star. forgot that that he was your yeah. brother, and yeah. I, now I remember that you're saying it that he's, he's, he is. A musician. Now he's a Jewish rock star, Jewish but. Rock star. You know, he had his, he had that dream, and he felt like like Judaism was going to take that dream away, yeah. and he took off, and he, he just didn't want to share that too much. Yeah. But in the end, he dropped me off at LAX actually, and when I left LA, and he he said to me at the bottom of the escalator while I was going up, he said, "You're going to bring me back." Wow. And I was like, "To what?" Because I had no idea where right. I was going. Right. And he said, "You'll you'll see." And that was it. And, uh, and I did call him a couple days later when I got to Israel. I'm like, how could you have left? How do you leave a place like this? You had like an instant connection when you, oh, were, like, you felt that energy. Instant, instant. And it, and it wasn't so much, again, I'm not that intuitive. I got it from hearing Rabbi Noah Weinberg speak every day for, to us for an hour. Yeah. And his brother, Rabbi Yaakov Weinberg, the Rosh Hashanah near Israel, mm -hmm, spoke sure. every day to us for an there. hour, back to back. And then we had all the other great rabbis there, who were you know, real classics. And then at night, I would talk to the boys, the Bachrim. And there was this 
rabbi, who, oh, he wasn't a rabbi, then he was a yeshiva boy. He was, but today he's Rabbi Shalom Dembo. Sure, I know Dembo. Yeah, you know, a, a pi rabbi. A pi rabbi. <laughs> And he was assigned to me. Another L.A. guy. Yes. Well, now. 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 <laughs> With a thick East Coast accent. That's right. That's right. So he was assigned to me as the... Uh, like a mentor kind of thing. Mentor, so, yeah. So. And uh, we saw the sunrise. I mean, it was every night. Like, wow. And that was it. It was like... It was, by the ninth day, I was floored. I mean, I just came out of there. But it wasn't easy. You know, I kind of locked myself in the room for a few days after that. And, once I knew I was staying forever, I had to like kind of lock myself in the room and spend a few days. Now it's a pretty thinking pretty about the lifestyle shift. It's a pretty dramatic reaction, you know. It's a pretty intense reaction. Yeah, well, uh, I was pretty intense. I mean, seems like you go all in on things, you know. I'm very all in on things, and that's part of big wave riding. You right. know, when you're taking when you're riding normal size waves, if you don't want the wave, you know, just back off of it. Uh -huh. You don't have to go paddle in. Big waves, once it gets. 14, 15 feet and up, you, there's no backing out. When you choose a wave, that's your wave, no matter mm -hmm. what's gonna happen. Because if you try to back out, a couple options, yeah. either you're gonna get sucked in, you know, hugging your board, that's gonna be dangerous. Um, you can, let's say you succeeded in backing out, but how do you know what kind of monster's behind it? And you're gonna be right in the impact zone. So it's a rule like that you get through experience. <laughs> Hard knocks, yeah. When you're in big wave riding, you're in. You know, you when you turn around for a wave, you're you going. You're taking it. Yeah. You know, so that was just uh, we didn't. That's just how I've lived my life. You know, going in all the way, and and I still go in all the way in everything I do. Did people around you like worried? Uh, besides your parents, I'm sure may have worried. But, yeah, they freaked. For but sure. others, you know, even around you, say like, "Yo, dude, you know, slow down." <laughs> you know. Yeah, I definitely got a few slowdowns here and there, but um, those were different days. And, mm. and people also recognized that I'd been on this long journey. This was the culmination of a long journey of integrating all kinds of philosophies and lifestyles. I mean, I wasn't a kid coming out of Harvard University wearing an Argyle sweater, you know, at all. A red Argyle sweater, but right. crimson. <laughs> uh, nothing like that here. I mean, I, I you know, I was like... You know, my payas now, I don't know how long they are, but they're pretty long. And they, you know, I had a hundred of these coming down my back. You know, I was... Dreads. I, I was, yeah, I was on the journey, you know. And Trustafarian. Yeah, I was on the journey. And they, they, so they were pretty chill with me. They, they didn't slow me down too much. What do you think was like the one most impactful piece of information or just kind of... The most paradigm? impactful blew, that blew me away was, uh, was that the Book of Esther... Mm. The famous code in the Book of Esther yeah. really blew my mind, you know, yeah. that... that uh, Purim Fest 1946. Yeah, yeah, encoded in the names of Haman's ten sons was the date of the Nuremberg trials in Germany, like... 5707. Where ten Nazis were hung. And the whole... Yeah, that blew me away. I mean, I really walked out of there, you know, realizing there was, there was a God, and this is... Something more, yeah. Actually, I walked out of the building to call my parents not to send my surfboards straight out of that class because they were going to send my boards to Europe. Oh. I don't want to lose my boards, you know. Like, <laughs> the last thing I need is my quiver of surfboards in a European airport while I'm in Israel. Is there but, any surfing in Israel? Sure, yeah. Waves are very any good. Really? Very good, yeah. Really? Where? Yeah. 
the whole Mediterranean coast from the south to the north. Really, because when I go to you know a beach in Tel Aviv, the Tanya, something like that, they don't seem like very large waves. Well, if there are waves that day, you may be behind a breakwater, so you're not really seeing them. You know, a lot of the swimming beaches have breakwaters, which we appreciate because those breakwaters can produce pretty good sandbars on the other, you know, on the sides. It also the, our, our surface isn't as consistent as other countries, meaning. It might be up tomorrow. It, it will be up tomorrow. Oh, yeah. Um, but the next day might be flat. Whereas most countries, the waves come in for a few days. Mm. This is, the Mediterranean is not a large enough body of water to create what's called a ground swell. Mm. These are wind waves or wind swell. It's local wind in the Mediterranean. Whereas, you know, I could be surfing Malibu on waves that were off the coast of New Zealand at one point oh, and goodness. have moved their way up. So there you go, you get your Australian adventure after all, you just, yeah. <laughs> you're riding the same waves. Right. So did you immediately know that you wanted to, you know, it sounded like you wanted to stay, but did you have like an immediate clear path or goal once not, you were staying? Not really. Did you no. really study and see where things went? Yeah, just study. It's nice being in the old city of Jerusalem because everyone's just taking it as it, they come. I mean, right. there's no real set path there, and yeah. which is great because you get a menu of Shabbat tables and kind of uh, see what you like at each thing and visit all kinds of different synagogues and kind of develop your own hybrid form of Judaism. But later on, you know, in the second year, third year, fourth year, you start to look around and say, well, I am going to have to send my kids to school and I do want some community in, you know, the old cities, a community of individuals. It'll be the eternal iconoclast. Yeah. Terminally so, unique. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, there was a point where like wisdom kicked in that that you know you're gonna have to tell your kids something, you know, because you're not you know it's very nice you know how to learn Mishnah, but kids not learning Mishnah until in an intellectual way until he's probably ten, eleven, twelve. So, what about all those previous years? Like, what what do you tell a kid? Yeah. And so a lot of Balchivas missed that and they didn't know what to tell the kid. And uh, the kid grows up and he. He has Torah, but he doesn't necessarily have what's called Masara, which is just the traditions of a community and the way we do things, right. you know, which we didn't know how to do. But, but, uh, but what had happened is I, I was really bored with the Litvish derch. You know, with all respect to Litvaks, I've only learned with Litvaks all my years. I mean, I, I have right. a, I've had uh, years of learning with Litvaks. Um, so the more the cold analytical approach to study. Yeah, which is great, and uh, and the people aren't cold usually, or hopefully, and the, right. it's just that the, the and it wasn't the study that bothered me. I actually, the study I appreciated, it was the quietness in prayer. Mm. The prayer was a little too quiet. And too much decorum. Yeah, it's a <laughs> bit of a library, and I didn't like that very much. Oh, had you been experimenting or visiting other kinds of communities? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, when you're when you're becoming observant in Jerusalem, you just dabble you know you're checking out everything and I, I was just not there weren't communities in the I mean I was basically growing up amongst Litvaks you know right. Lithuanian yeshiva style people and there wasn't community I mean we had each other I guess while we were learning but it's not like we ever did anything together right. you know it wasn't like there were get-togethers we certainly didn't have any road trips you know and but I did notice that the chassidim were getting together every Friday night in you know grandeur and longs chillins 
chilling out there together, not to mention a little coffee tea room action and uh, mikvah, you know, <laughs> some hanging out going on in there. That's right. <laughs> and and then there were road trips to Kivrit Sadiqim that were all going on and Shabbatons and anyway, I was impressed by that. And Sephardim also have a bit of community going on. And, huh. and yeah. uh, it was uh, they, that's something that a lot of the people in the Lithuanian or yeshiva path never notice that they don't really have community. I mean, if you make a simcha, they'll come. Right. You know, and now you feel the community at your, at, uh, you made a bris, you made a wedding. You feel the community, but there's nothing community-based that you mm -hmm. do except for maybe go to a funeral or another, another life cycle event. Um, whereas uh, Hasidim were, were proactive community people. Now, I'm a party thrower, like, at my core. My sukkahs cost some $10,000 of... Wow serving meals every night to 100 people with a oh live, live band, keg beer, bunch of lighting effects and sound system and you know I'm a party thrower and gotta uh, remind myself to come back here for circus. We have third meal here every week and we, we get together and we spend time together. Maybe I'll come for third meal. You're welcome there we to. Go. Yeah, you're right I'm here. I'm staying right around the corner. Although yeah. I don't know if I could find this place without a GPS. Ah, yes. Oh my God, the winding through the alley is unbelievable. Ask for us. We're like an <laughs> you're institution. The, you're a landmark over here. Yeah. Wow. We're here 20, since we're married 23 years. Three years in the old city and 23 years here. Beautiful. Wow. So... Anyway, but that, that communal thing was very important right. to me. And, and, uh, and, but the, the kicker or the clincher was that I discovered a shul where they do ecstatic prayer. Mm. And ecstatic prayer was a very, you know, a far cry from the Lithuanian style prayer right. where people are like really like, Blasting out, it's Carlene and Pins Carlene. Mm -hmm, where, I've heard them, sure. You can the, hear them passing by the street. Sure, yeah, you hear from blocks away, you know, and it's just super turbo prayer, you know, and that was, I was into that. Yeah. And also with a psychedelic background, I'm studying Hasidut. You know, Hasidus was, it was amazing because it was like just put into form uh, all the thoughts and visions of the background I had had, suddenly there was a language that was common to, to first-hand you know, experiences that were no, you couldn't deny the reality of, of you know, at gunpoint you couldn't deny what you had seen was real, you know, like the you know, life-changing, absolutely fundamentally altering your, your sense of self, your ego, your sense of reality, proportion of, you know, the, the awesomeness of creation. And, and now you open up a Sefer Hasidus and it's like, well, that's what they're talking about, you know? And not to mention when you get into the deeper ones like the Balatanya and stuff that's, you know, really Kabbalah more than Hasidus, but you start learning that stuff. And the famous Sefer of the Balatanya is, uh, uh, Sefer Yichud Ve'amuna is uh, unity and faith. Yeah. It's like, whoa, you know, that's that that I've experienced that, you know, and and so it was so cathartic uh, that it was a no-brainer. Like I'm in, you know, like did you, did you find static prayer right? community, <laughs> you know, the deeper wisdom, yeah. deep wisdom that you know, and and meanwhile. In my, the bulk of my hours were Gemara, Shulchan Aruch, right. 
you know, it was uh, the bulk of my hours were what you, the yeshivish crowd learns anyway. So it wasn't like I was missing out on that. Right. This was kind of an added layer. I mean, yeah, but a very thick layer and a, a lifestyle layer. Did you find that community, those communities, to be penetrable, accessible? Hardly. Right, because Hardly. they're very yeah, they're closed, right? It's it closed places. It doesn't have a big welcome sign right. on there. <laughs> There's no guy greeter at the door, you know, with, with a Starbucks and a and a user manual. You know, it's kind of like, so how do you? Uh, a guy wearing a giant Strimal outfit, where his hands are sticking out of the sandwich boards. <laughs> So how do you, I mean, you just kind of fight to, I mean, Hasidim like to push in general. I was just on the light rail the other day and, oh my goodness gracious. <laughs> I was on there today. I got so angry. I was, you know, you know, and I'm a pretty like, you know, wild guy. I'm not like Mr. <laughs> Decorum, but, you know, we stop at the stop and I try to, you know, get out first and then, no, they start pushing right away. And I said, <laughs> it's, I said, hello in Hebrew. It is obvious that the people come out first and then you go in. And the guy looks at me straight in the face, one of the guys, he goes, no, we do it all at the same time. <laughs> really? Straight face, like, like dead serious. Like, no, we do it at once. <laughs> it's just it's total chaos. That's what happened when the train came. They had to, like, re-educate the population <laughs> that it's just not going to work. They even made lines where, like, this is where you wait. Yeah, good luck with that. Those are gone now. Good luck with that. So, I mean, how did, how did, you, did you just learn to push? Did you just learn to fight your way in? So when it comes to um, Hasidus, it, it is not welcoming at all to someone who's not raised there. But um, but the group I <laughs> stumbled upon were Yerushalmis. And Yerushalmis are kind of a different breed. Right, long time These are the gold robes. Yeah, the gold robes. and they're, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobis, and they're more welcoming. Interesting. You know, their tradition was that they came... There were very few of them. I think in the 1800s, the old Yeah, in the friend. 1800s. And so whoever moved into Israel, whoever made that pilgrimage and moved here, well, you just, if you dive in Nusach this, you were there. And if you dive in Nusach that, you were there. And, and actually, Karlin was the first Hasidic synagogue in the old city. So a lot of Hasidim, of all stripes, became Karliners by default. Right. It's just because it's a Gavaldic Hasidus. And... And it's, uh, it just kind of worked, you know, like you're, it's very Middle Eastern. The songs have these minor scales that go to major and like, huh. you know, da -da 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 major, minor, right? you know, it's like, it's Middle Eastern, you know, and they're very Middle Eastern people, very simple people. And uh, they actually, you want to hear something fascinating. They would tell me that they felt more comfortable with me who barely knew olive base, and I didn't know, you know, had basically, I didn't know what I was doing. They, they said they felt more comfortable with me than their European yeshivish cohorts, who might be living next door for the last thirty years. Interesting. So I said, why is that? And they said, well, we both kind of missed a lot of stuff. And I'm like, well, what did you miss? And they said, well, we missed the Haskalah, the Enlightenment. That we miss. We've been here ever since then. So, and, and we also miss the Industrial Revolution because even though we <laughs> were in Europe for the Industrial Revolution's beginning, we moved out right. to the Middle East where it still hasn't hit. Right. So, the, um, so we miss the Industrial Revolution. We miss the Enlightenment. We miss 200 years of pogroms. We miss the Reform Movement where Jews are actually going away from Judaism. Like, that never happened here. And, uh, you know, in the Yerushalmi tradition, that was not... A reality, and and we miss World War One. I. I mean, that had quite an impact, yeah, and we miss yeah. we miss World War Two, and the Holocaust. Yeah, 
And they said, well, you were raised as this secular kid in L.A. where your family just put Europe behind you. So you were raised without all of the baggage of right. Europe. Or that consciousness, yeah. And so we, we like you. Interesting. You're, you're simple. You're easy. You're, you're a Shalmin. You just don't know it. No trauma. No trauma, yeah. Isn't that interesting? And so, never thought about the Yerushalmi community that way. Yeah, they love Bali Chuma. Love. Well, they're very Chuma. welcoming in general. I do find yeah. myself as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that's fascinating. Take the right spot. Yeah, exactly. Thank God. Oh my gosh, I, I pity the fool who joins a Hasidus that well, there are some is not it, the welcoming ones. But yeah, only because I meet them twenty years later, and I'm like, you're like a, a caricature. Kind okay, of like a stepchild, yeah. But you're, you're like a caricature of who you might have been if you were in a show called Hasidut. And the full integration is much more difficult. Yeah. yeah. Well, at least maintaining who you are. Right. So what did you end up doing, I mean, longer term? So you start, did you start, at what point did you start teaching? So in Asia Torah, you start teaching as soon as you know something. Right. Rav Noach used to always say, if you know Aleph, teach Aleph. If right. you know base. Teach bass. Right. And if you know, he would keep going. If you know yeah. Gimel, teach Gimel. And if you know Dal, all the way to, he would, I'm kidding, he wouldn't go all the way to tough. But, right. But, but you thought he was going to. And it's an interesting approach because, you know, I think that, that's an approach that's been debated given <laughs> that, yeah. you know, you don't have much context when you have only half Yeah. <laughs> half baked and you only, you don't have a, a sense of larger perspective. So yeah. our famous discovery seminar, within, I think it was my eighth week at Ashantar, I still did not really know how to read. Um, they made me in charge of the closure class. I forget what it was called, but... Probably the closure class. <laughs> no, no, it had a term. I forget what it was, but it was the last hour of a three... It was when Discovery was oh, three yeah, days. Oh, yeah, people had attention spans, yeah. Right, it was the last hour, and that was given to me to lead, where I had... My job was to, like pull it out of them what they achieved in these three days and where they're going with it with music Uh i'm a musician so it was with music and people would cry people got into it and i did that for years meaning i was already a major module of the discovery seminar in my eighth week meaning my my keep it was still crisp So it was immediate, you know. I'm, I, people ask me sometimes, you know, how long you've been teaching, and I'm like, well, 27 years. And they're like, well, how long are you observing? And I'm like, 27 years. <laughs> and eight weeks. <laughs> and eight weeks. <laughs> right. That's incredible. So I mean, over time, I imagine you started to develop and sort of patent a, a particular style of teaching and a particular interest yeah. and so forth. Yeah. And where'd you go with, with that and, and how did you kind of find your My groove? voice. Yeah. yeah, your voice. Yeah. Um, by the way, I, I just want to say, because I, I sound like a know-it-all just because I'm doing this so long, but I, I'm pushing limits on things right now in my, and this is a separate subject. I'm pushing into limits where I'm such a novice all the time, meaning, meaning who people know me as today is definitely a huge part of my life. But I myself, I'm still going into all kinds of uncharted water. I'm, I play novice in all kinds of ways throughout the week. And, and I'm, I'm really a novice. I'm not the know-it-all. You know, I, I do know well what I do. But I'm doing stuff that I don't know what I'm doing. Interesting. And I'm doing that a lot. So that's, that's really 
that's really where I live. I live in that push the limits to the new realms. And, um, but back to your question, I'm a, what's called a stream of consciousness teacher. I'm a stream of consciousness teacher. And, and this is why you don't I, have to prepare. I, I, I've discovered this new uh, teacher named Jordan Peterson. Sure, sure. And he's a stream of consciousness right. teacher. And what he does is he takes a mix of high IQ, which he has, right. and lots of research and background. But when he's in there teaching, if you watch him on YouTube or something, he his just, podcast, yeah. or his podcast, yeah. he's just, there's no plan. Right. There's really no plan. And, and so I found that voice many years ago. Meaning when I taught my first class, I was told to make an outline. Well, it didn't come out so well. <laughs> and so I quickly scratched that and just jumped up in front of everybody and just went for it. And it was wildly popular, it went great. Just a mixture of charisma and, and kind of a deep knowing that comes with putting yourself in a mikvah every morning and, and, uh, and deeply into prayer. And you know, it just kind of gives you a certain confidence that it's a vibrational energy inside the heart of everyone who's listening. And it's kind of funny because I'm in a, I've been working for Aish all these years and it's kind of a place where you meet people in the intellectual realm of like, is it real, is it not, right. is it true, is it not? But I've somehow circumvented all that. Even though I know how to teach those classes and I do still teach on Discovery, I'll be teaching there you know, in, in a week. Um, even though I teach on Discovery and do those classes, I skip that for the most part. I'm going straight to the heart. Straight to the heart, straight to the, like this inner knowing we have. And, and people tend to groove with that. And what's interesting is once in a while I get a guy who's upset. Right. I'll get an upset, you know, student who's like, I, you know, you're presupposing a lot of stuff. Right. And I just don't understand how you can be doing that. And then I, now I also I have a, an, a seminar company that I've been running right. internationally. Right, I want to talk to you about that, absolutely. So I've been running that for 17 years. Yeah. I've got, I don't know, seven, 8,000 graduates where you, you literally like deconstruct how you see the world, like who school. you are, <laughs> right? It's deconstruction of the self. Yeah. Well, what'll happen is the guy who comes up against me in class or out of class, both, and sometimes I have to deconstruct a guy in class, but generally I'm gentle with a guy in class, but generally what happens is I start deconstructing him a little bit, just a little, and then all of a sudden he starts listening better. Next day, he's, he's listening. I had a rabbi come up to me. We, we ran a Shabbaton, and one of the rabbis there, you know, a young rabbi, says to me, you know, I want to thank you because many, many years ago, I was in your essentials class. We're talking like 12 years ago or so. And I was a jerk. I was really a jerk, and I gave you a hard time. And he said, after a week of that, you pulled me aside on Thursday, the end of the week, and you gave me a thrashing. You gave me a thrashing and just, in the end, just said to me, where is this going, man? Like, where is this going to go? Where is this going to take you? And the answer is, is it's not going to take you anywhere that's going to be productive. And so I gave him that thrashing. And he asked if he could, the next day he calls me, asked if he could come for Shabbos. And talk about a non-intellectual environment. My Shabbos table is experiential all the way. And that was it. After that Shabbos, he went and enrolled in yeshiva. And so the timing was just right for him to be kind of taken apart there. 
I mean, that's a bit of a chutzpah, is to take a guy who stream of consciousness education is not his style, and you're skipping all kinds of very important right. it's not really steps. Fair. Not really fair to him. There's steps, but yet if you go in on the guy afterwards and say, hey man, you're, I don't like your approach, not because intellectual approach is not a good approach, that's a wonderful approach, but I'm sensing in his facial movement after 7,000 people of possible use seminars, you know, you start to read people's faces. You see their posturing in the way they're interacting with you. And you can go in on that and they get real honest. They get real true. I guess unless they're really emotionally fragile, in which case they might run. You can have a runner. You can have that. We call them runners. Runners. <laughs> <laughs> but you can have that. But you know what? That's okay too because, because he's going to run. And he, but they, how far can you run? Right. Eventually he's back online and he's going to click on this and he's going to click on that and he's, he's going to be somewhat feeling like the, that was an unturned stone in his life mm -hmm. and he'll turn it over later. You may not be his favorite rabbi, <laughs> he may never talk to you again, he may even speak badly about you, but that's another subject is being a public figure, is mm. de dealing with uh, people speaking. The inevitable... Yeah. Uh... Oh, inedible uh, slandering. Uh, slandering, yeah, you get that. Because uh, you, I made a conscious choice. There was a point, I remember I was actually standing in front of a possible group, and you know, we had these 40 men together. You're like brothers, I mean, you've just totally yeah. exposed yourselves. Um, not that anyone has to share their privacy, because who has time for that? I mean, 40 men. <laughs> if everyone shared a half hour, that's already, you know, how many hours? It's a weekend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's not going to happen, but, but you really feel quite vulnerable to each other and you're and you're all because you all are it bonds you like people feel closer to each other than their siblings and at one point I gave a little share and I said I realize where I'm going now and it's going much more public it was this many years ago yeah. 15 years ago and I said I realized doing that is going to be exposing myself to slander to character assassination god forbid and I said it's a basic mathematical equation is the good I can do worth more than my own Ego for sure, that's already deeper. I'm just saying my own reputation. Yeah. But ego's even really the deeper way of saying yeah. it. Is it worth it? And the answer is, maybe for some people they'd say, you know what, I'm not sure that what I have to share is worth that, but definitely what I had to share was. Yeah. And I said, that's it, I'm going in. So what, what exactly is, you've referenced a few times, the, the possible me or the possible you. This is like a, a self-help seminar, a... Mm. Personal discovery, emotional personal growth thing. Growth. Yeah. yeah. What what's what is it exactly? So you so realize? so, what happened was uh, I was uh, I had been trained by in hypnotherapy, which was just a stroke of luck. Meaning uh, meaning the rabbinic corsetation tour in the late 1990s, which I was in, we needed to be trained in practical rabbinics and like counseling, but it just so happened that Asia tour at that point had canceled meaning put, like close their Russian program. But what do we do with the head of the Russian program? He was on salary. <laughs> Might as well have him teach hypnotherapy. <laughs> exactly, because he was a famous, I mean, he had over a million listeners a week on hypnotherapy, on uh, okay. Rush, Russian radio. You will radio. listen again next week, okay? <laughs> okay? <laughs> you will get all of your friends to listen. Right. That's a good way to build an audience. Can we try that on the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> so, so he was... Uh, they needed to do something with this salaried, you know, highly capable man, and he was given to us. Now, of course, most of the rabbinic students couldn't handle a full hypnotherapy course, but I could. 
and so could a couple others. One of the famous ones, Gedalia Rosen, who's one of the yeah. top you know therapists in Jerusalem. And so we did that, and I worked in that for five years. Um, toured also as well, and public spoke on the subject, and and uh, had a lot, a lot of clients, and. And what I discovered, which, which was what he had said at the very beginning, is everyone has five fears. Meaning no matter who you deal with as a client, he'll either have a fear of rejection, he's going to have a fear of failure, he's going to have a fear of being out of control, meaning that he's being controlled by right. government, police, the rabbi, man. rabbis, <laughs> God, uh, fear of being out of control, the fear of the unknown, or in the rare case of the old people, the fear of like a physical pain and suffering. But he says it will always boil down to that. Well, think about it. I'm a, I'm a group person. I love classrooms. I love groups. I love working with people, a room full of people, a hall. I don't love one-on-one. -on -one. I'm still hired all the time for it. And I've, I've had to increase my prices just so less people would ask. I'm not kidding. I've, I've really upped it just well, there, to like... There goes that thought for me. <laughs> <laughs> but it was just a way to get less demand. And it worked, by the way. And, uh, you know, it's because if I can see one person, the price of two. Absolutely. So... Anyway, the, um, so I finally, after years of this and hundreds of hours of hypnotherapy, I was like, oh my gosh, everyone has one of these five fears. He's right. And it's all coming from a deep core pain in their heart, from some stupid thing that happened when they were a kid or some family dynamic because their parents were Holocaust survivors or grandparents were early. Meaning it was coming from some thing that happened or a dynamic that was in place in their childhood, right. which was a much deeper thing than the fear. The fear was the outer symptom. So what we would do in the hypnotherapy is regress the guy back to the childhood, get in that mode, and have him walk it through, though, as an adult while holding the child, mm. holding the child as the adult, and bringing Hashem into it. And that it really was part of a bigger plan and, and putting it all in context now. And suddenly that person would heal. Now, I said... Well, to hell with this one-on-one -on -one business because I'm putting this guy in hypnosis and I'm falling asleep. I mean, literally, I was falling asleep. I, mean, I had clients saying, like, Rabbi? <laughs> right? I mean, they were halfway under and they finally like open up one eye, open up the other eye, and they see I'm fast asleep. So I said, to hell with that. I'm starting seminars. And I grabbed a group of H boys for free. You know, I just grabbed a group of H boys and said, you're in a seminar. We're going in. We're going deep. To find out why you look at the world the way you look at the world, like what's what's your lens, man? What's the lens you've been using all these years? Now, Rav Noah Weinberg saw me do, you know, doing what I was doing, and he was just like, like Yomto, whatever you need, you know, like just he like was sending me here, there, and everywhere to gather more and more and more info so I could become, you know, a real seminar leader. And I ran this program at age. And Aish would have loved it as a program. It would have been a perfect program for Aish. And to tell you the truth, it should be a program in Aish now. <laughs> um, it should be. I mean, maybe a disciple of mine could run it because I don't have so much time to do that. But what happened was there was no one left at Aish to do it for. And so what happened was all the tutors from the Mir Yeshiva, who really, I think, are getting more than the Aish guys were getting because they get to be with Balchuvas or choosing Judaism. You know, they loved it. They saw their students had transformed their lives over the last few, few weeks of the possible you. So they were like, what happened to you? Like, it wasn't me, that's for sure. What happened to you? You're like, you're, they, they just got to a much truer place, a true place to live. Like, like, we all live from a place, and they got to a true place to live from, the students. 
and so the mirror yeshiva boys were like, what? what's going on? They're like, well, I did this seminar, that's, you know, a free seminar at Aish. And the next thing I knew, I ran the next seminar. Now, I had saturated the Aish student body. I run a seminar, it's all black hats. It's all mirror yeshiva boys. At which point, Aish is like, what the hell is going on here? Who are all these guys? And what are they doing filling our classroom every day? And, and I was like, they're doing my seminar. And Aish was like, no, they're not. <laughs> Not here, they're not. Why don't you go rent a hall, Rabbi? Right. You know, like, and I, yeah. I rented a hall, and the rest was history. It's now 17 years later. They just run these all over the all over the world. The yeah, world. Oh, yeah, yeah, all over the world. And they're yeah, generally but my main fans. cities are my main cities are Jerusalem, Brooklyn, and Muncie. Interesting. So, like for example, uh, we have women's seminars uh, coming up right now. Rosh Chodesh. We have English. Oh, I started Hebrew now. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I'm running Hebrews there. That's so risky. Israelis, yeah. going deep. That's brave. Oh my gosh. And I, the first men's seminar was like, because, you know, it was in Mishpach magazine, and here comes the Ger Hasidim, and the, this kind, and that kind, and, and a lot of Litfox, and Roshe Kailel, and Roshe Kehila, and they all showed up for it, because if you read the article in Mishpach, which was in Hebrew, you can't not come if you're serious about growth. How do you not come? You know, how do you look yourself in the mirror? So they came. Within a half hour, the lights are off. I'm strumming guitar. I mean, they're not used to kumzits, some of these Rosh Kolas, right. with the frock. But the lights are out, and I'm taking them deep. Because remember, I'm a hypnotherapist by trade. Yeah. And of course, you're not doing hypnotherapy with a whole group, but you kind of are. And an hour later, lights come on. There's not a dry eye in the house. And they're just like, ah. And they spontaneous. Never happened with an English group spontaneously broke out in wild applause. This whole group of men who were all either executives or Avrecha Ikoilel or they were Roshe Kehilas. Torah scholars, yeah. And they just broke out in applause. And at that point, that moment, because we weren't sure it was even going to work. How are we going to do such a seminar? You know, a seminar that belongs in like Northern California. Right. You know, how are we going to do that with a bunch of Israeli black hat yeah, They have the earthy crunchy types. Yeah. And the more the Kugel. Uh, <laughs> but we knew right then in that ecstatic moment that it was going to work. And we ran a second one, absolute blow away. And the women's first women's one's going to be in LO. Uh, I forget which day in LO, 21st, I think. And then we got men's ones in October, English in Jerusalem, men, Hebrew and English. These are day long things or weekends? No, it's, uh, it's in Israel, it's six nights because we don't have Sundays. Right. But in America, it's four days. Sunday all day for men, and then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday night for men. I put it specifically on non-work hours for men, so they can't say no. <laughs> women, on the other hand, a lot of women work, so I don't get them, but unless they're, you know, like serious growth ladies, and then they'll tell their bosses, like, not only am I not going to be here, I expect you're paying for this because I'm going to be a better employee. That's I always tell, I've, many bosses have sent their entire offices, over, not all at once, but over the years, they've sent their different men and women from their offices to the seminar. Because they're like, if my employees can be generating from a sure. real place, I mean, how much better is that gonna be? You know, Good for, for the company. Yeah. So, and not to mention the integrity training, there's a lot of integrity training. You know, it's mm. like, coming on time, getting homework's checked. If you didn't do your homework, we're gonna be discussing that. You know, <laughs> it's full participation, man. Like. It's like almost like the school you never got to go to. Yeah, right. <laughs> now you're running it for others. Yeah, right. <laughs> it is fun, by the way. As I'm often standing in front of people, and here are all these 
sometimes highly educated people come and hear me speak. And I'm kind of chuckling inside that I am not an academic. You know, like I ended that many years ago. And any fact I may say outside of Torah is only because I Googled it. You know, and, and sometimes I'm mentioning a fact and I ask a student in the class to Google it. I often appoint a Googler during class time and thank God, what a resource. Yeah. You know, who needs a degree when, when you can just ask one of the students in the room? Or Siri. If you don't mind, yeah. would you Google it? I, here's a statistic I heard, but would you mind Googling that? This week I did it. You know, and the girl said, I had heard that the statistical chance of a repeat assault in a country like the U.S. where that kind of assault is one percent, so if it happens once to someone, it should be a zero or a negative chance of repeat because they already had it. You know, you go from one percent, and if you got it, now you should be negative fifty percent chance. But it's the opposite. You're more susceptible. Much more, and that's the vibrational energy, which is what the the whole possibility is based on vibrational energy, because that core place that got somehow maimed as a child by whatever was going on, mm. which there's no one exempt from stuff going on. So that becomes your vibrational energy, mm. and it's what you attract. So you can shift that and fortify yourself. And yeah, you, sh you shift it. And the way you shift it is only through a short-term, intensive program. If you go weekly, like once a week, it won't work, because you come back re-fortified each week. Mm -hmm. You know, your, your block's back. Water up. never boils. Yeah, it never boils like that. And it also has to be long hours so that you have time to process. Anyway, but they, whatever, so I had given the statistic that I had heard 40% chance of a repeat assault. So, but I'm not giving numbers. Like, I told the lady who was with the iPhone, I said, please Google that for me. And she's like, 34%. 34% chance. And here, I got the authority. She quoted the site. You know, they, did good, they had done good, good research. And that was it. What other uh, things are you working on now? You mentioned before your you're pushing new ventures and, and, well, and Well, one of the things is uh, obviously, uh, believe it or not, Gamora. <laughs> oh, interesting. Coming back uh, to the basics. Yes, yes. I'm, I'm, I'm having this whole renaissance in learning, and I've noticed that, uh, that it just is different now. It's different. I'm more on the page, meaning the proof of all of this is I would never remember the names. You know, Rabbi Kiva Omer, Rabbi Shimon Omer, Rabbi this, that, right. Uh, you know, Rova said this, and uh, Abishul said that, and uh, you know, it's like, I don't remember all that. All of a sudden now, I, I can tell you who said what on every page, because I'm on the page. I'm also on the page. Yeah. Like, it's gone like 3D for me. So now I'm just going back in, and like, taking up pieces of Gomorrah, some that I know, some I don't, and just re, experiencing our sages and wow it is something very special but I'm quite novice because I've been doing cure of all these years I haven't been pouring over Gamora's I have been traveling around the world like with a guitar so it's that's when one thing where I'm like totally a novice and and I will without any shame go up to the guy sitting next to me in the shul and I will you know who's my neighbor for 20 years and say, can you just help me with this line? And he helps me with a line, which in the end comes out pretty rudimentary, you know, a little embarrassing. But, uh, you know, I'm okay with that. You know, I just want to know. And, and the discussion we have winds up being quite high level. But, you know, it was just a very basic question that I had on something a little embarrassing that I should have known. 
um, but we but we cover it and take it to the next level. Um, I'm also my latest thing has been though like the thing I'm really invested in is meditation. Mm. I've been going in, uh, much deeper into meditation. I've created a my own little meditation space in the house, and I have framed kabbalistic things, shavisia Hashem's that are hundreds of years old, uh, with deep kavanot and all kinds of forms of God's name. And, and they were, I mean, I'm sure they were in synagogues in Sfat or wherever, at one point, you know, behind the Amud, and whoever was leading davening probably knew what he was doing. And I've been spending, you know, time, like today, I spent a good 45 minutes just sitting and breathing. And, you know, I, I like, uh, I burned some sage, uh, Israeli sage. Uh, the sage, sage is not, not a sage, but <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of those in Jerusalem. Also. The, the, the vegetation. Some of them in your, in your possible, you know. Yeah. <laughs> the vegetation sage, and and there's uh, you know hundreds of types, but only the one from Israel has just the sweetest, most incredible aroma. And I'll burn a little sage and got candles lit, and um, you know a, a couple of the avanim of the coin guttles breastplate. You know, a couple stones there, you know, just around and, you know, and uh, it was, it's kind of funny because uh, my son-in-law's a coin and, you know, my grandchildren were, you know, kind of join me sometimes for the meditations and, you know, there's just little pipsqueaks, but they want to be around their Zadies, so they're sitting there while I'm meditating. And he, he came in the other day and he was like, you know, I really don't appreciate this and, you know, I don't like the smells. And, you know, of course, I have some, like, meditation music in the background that's kind of nondescript. It's right. just very background, ethereal, you know, maybe it's strings or something, yeah. or, you know, synthesizer type, no beat or anything like that. You, you wouldn't even know it's there. I don't even notice it's there. Anyway, it's like, I, you know, I just, this is just not Judaism. And I'm like, young man, because he's just a young man, I'm like, you are a Cohen, and these smells are nothing compared to the smells that you're going to be involved in and were involved in temple times. You know, this is, the smell of burning sage is nothing compared to the 11 spices, which, I mean, we were serious about those spices. I mean, you just, you even put those spices together, not for temple use, and it's the death penalty. Or you take the spices and you burn them outside the temple, it's the death penalty. And those stones are, I mean, the Kohanim were, the high priest was wearing a full breast, he was wearing a full breastplate of 12 stones that Rabbeinu Bechayas says that there is no stones of the precious stones of the world that don't draw the koichel yonim, the the, whatever that means, I mean, the higher powers, higher powers, you know, you understand. And, and then I'm like, and you don't like the music? Like, not that it's exactly the Levium, but uh, Jerusalem, you, you, when you set foot in Jerusalem, you already heard the music. You smelled the smells. I mean, you're, yeah. you know. So he's got to get with the program. Yeah, and, and who had all these names wired? And obviously, I don't have the names the Kohanim had, but... Uh, they were using names that are way beyond these names. Yeah. Names forbidden to be used outside the temple and, and forbidden to even be known by anyone who wasn't a coin. So anyway, he finally looked at me and he's like, I don't like it. 
<laughs> my speech, Grandpa. <laughs> But no. Yeah. No. <laughs> but the one thing he did, he left the kids. <laughs> he left the kids. He was like, I'm not going to take the kids away. <laughs> they might as well start getting used. Because one of them was a baby boy. And I was like, he's going to be serving. You know, like, he, we got to get him warmed up. That's for it. Got to prep him. So you know, just in closing, tell people kind of where they can learn more about you and, uh-huh. and your, uh, so, your work. Uh, so, okay, great. Uh, live feeds going on every day. And, oh. You know, free live feeds. There. Where is that? Uh, it is, uh, well, I, I just bought a new platform. So it actually, one platform sends it live to Facebook, Instagram, Twitch, YouTube, um, and a couple others. What's this uh, called? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but you bought it. <laughs> no, I have a tech guy who works for me. Oh, I don't, okay. I, mean, I, I don't know what these things are. As you didn't seem like I, the tech type to me. I so just press, rec- I press record. Well, that's impressive. You know. Yeah, and which, by the way, is a, a good lesson in itself is that Creative types must hire technical types, yeah. implementers. And they'd say to you, well, how am I going to afford that? You said, well, take a bank loan, man, like an unsecured bank loan for $6,000. You know, or 12, take $12,000. I don't know. Who cares? Just take an amount of money. An unsecured loan, they're not going to want any collateral for twelve grand or six grand. And let the guy start implementing your stuff. Don't be another Van Gogh who sold his first painting in his last year of his life. Get your creativity out there. People want this stuff. Well, you can't do it alone. You got to like wake up to the fact that you'll never do it. You cannot do this, but you can hire people and they will do it and they'll be happy to do it. And they'll not only in six months, this is my promise. I tell everybody, not only will you pay back the loan, he'll have been paid 12 grand, you know, two grand a month. And you'll have made a lot more money and be in a great position to go forward. And meanwhile, like, what did you do? All you do is you do your, what you're good at. Anyway, so I'm <laughs> sorry about that little rant. But anyway, but sold I, me. I am, I am live every day on all these different things. And I teach at Asia every day, 3 p.m. And I also, I do live webinars um, where people can be part of a club and, and be, in, be, you know, I see them, they see me. We can all be in touch with each other. And uh, it's quite powerful, a quite powerful medium to grow and it's closed meaning you're in a group that's the group we're going to work together obviously the Hasidic women have their cameras off you know <laughs> what can you do you know they're just not going to be visible on that thing but uh, not to mention the Dayanim and stuff like right. a lot of people sometimes I do seminars in places that are kind of Timbuktu you know I got hired to do it in Mexico or wherever and some like Diane from like Williamsburg shows up. <laughs> you know that's his, that's his anonymity. Yeah. With a bunch of Mexicans. Mm-hmm. You know, like, what's he doing here? So I'm doing that. And, uh, and the seminars are, it's called The Possible You, and those are online, thepossibleyou.org. And, uh, and obviously my website, rabbiyamtov.com. Whatever, I'm, I'm quite visible online. It's not hard. And, you know, obviously people who are low tech are going to have a harder time. F- tuning into that, but then there's Torah anytime. And they're probably not listening to the podcast, so. <laughs> probably, yeah, but I'm, I'm also on Torah anytime every day. Cool. And I mean, it goes to Torah anytime as well. Right. So thank God, using modern technology, we've been able to do this. And if I can rant a little more, that anyone with something worth saying should be getting it out there. And we got the technology. And how are you going to, how is any, no offense to the rabbis today, but how is any rabbi going to face God? How is any rabbi going to go upstairs in 2000 and whatever and God's going to say like you, you taught a beautiful sheer to your little chabura there that was great 
But you know what? All you had to do was press record on devices that were available, and it would have been instantly live all over the world, and you could have helped bring your children home. Or you could have helped bring my children home with your wisdom. And instead, it just, just hit the bearded gentleman sitting in front of you. And, you know, that was very nice and shkoyach. But, so this technology, obviously technology has its downfalls and it's got the dark side and it's got all that. But our job as Jews is to take what we got and raise the sparks. So. Find the possible you. Yes. Thank you very much, Yom Tov Glazer. A fascinating story, a journey that's still unfolding, as you say. Mm -hmm. And we'll continue to watch you push the limits. And hopefully people can tune in and push their own limits and mm -hmm. uh, really discover the possible you, the possible them, the possible me. Mm -hmm. Yom Tov Glazer, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.